Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. Welcome, everyone, to Session 3, Eye Diseases. Uh, I'm Dennis Clegg from UC Santa Barbara, and I'll be the moderator, and we'll hear from uh, four speakers today on efforts to develop cellular therapies for eye diseases. And, and just in the way of introduction, um, the eye actually has some advantages, people think, for developing cellular therapies. Uh, first of all, they're well-known surgical approaches to access all parts of the eye, the, the front, the middle, and the back. And we'll hear about some of those today. Uh, second, which I think is really important, is that they're really good outcome measures, things that we can measure very carefully and quantify the effects of a therapy. Uh, and then finally, it's possible that we may need fewer cells for some of these uh, approaches than other tissues. Um, and, and we should be able to see in some cases where the cells go and uh, uh, using non-invasive imaging to, to tell where they are and uh, how they're feeling in terms of, of vision. So uh, with that, uh, I'd like to start by introducing Kristen, Kristen McDonald, who uh, is a, a patient with retinitis pigmentosa, and uh, we're going to show an interview uh, with Kristen. So if we can go to that, we'll start the session. Our next guest is a lady who's been through a lot of challenges, but has never lost her sense of determination, her sense of style, or her sense of humor. Uh, we're delighted to welcome Kristen McDonald. Hello, Kristen. Hello, Kevin. So nice to be here. And hello, everyone. Thank you for having me today. Talk to us a little bit about your history, because when did you first start noticing that you were losing your eyesight or that your eyesight wasn't as good as it used to be? I started noticing sometime in my uh, mid-20s. I actually discovered that my retina started to change at age 21, but I, it was nothing that I paid attention to. My day vision was still very, very good, and but my night vision was starting to fail me. But I had this big dream of coming out west to work in Hollywood, so I, I guess the subconscious causes you to go into a bit of denial. I didn't find out till about age 30. I got clinically diagnosed at that time that I had retinitis pigmentosa. What did they tell you at the time? Well, it was rather devastating as part of my story because I think at anyone at age 30, you know, I think of these kids now with COVID-19 and they've had this great dream and all of a sudden man plans and God laughs and you realize that your dreams may not come to pass the way you thought they were going to. I had been working in television. My goal was to be an actress and a talk show host and I had just moved out west and I I suffered a broken arm for the second time at a cast party, at an NBC cast party, no pun intended. I ended up finding out that I didn't need glasses, but that I either had a brain tumor or was going to go blind from a condition called retinitis pigmentosa. And so what happened next? I know that you had to wait many years before a therapy came along. When did you hear about what uh, Dr. Klassen and JSite were doing? Well, it was a long time coming. I. I I credit the doctor that I, I finally got into the hands of at Jules Stein, uh, who told me that there would be things in the pipeline and that I could lead a full life. And 
that to me was so encouraging because I had had some bad experiences when I initially found out that I had the condition, some very devastating experiences from, from doctors who didn't have enough compassion. So it's, it's very uh, dramatic how words can change your life. But I waited 33 years and I was in one clinical trial 10 years ago and unfortunately it didn't give me any success but it was with the same group of very very fine doctors and I trusted by their background and whatnot that someday they'd have something for me and that's how I found out about the treatment with Dr. Glossen had been reading about him and had a lot of faith in it. So describe what that treatment was like. The stem cell treatments? Yes, very the, exciting. the one with Dr. Klassen. Yes, well, it was very exciting because for years, I think all of us, you know, even 10, 20 years ago, had heard about this miraculous thing called stem cell that was coming down the pike. And it really made me feel so encouraged that something, you know, not too invasive and, and hopefully something healthy from, from you know, another person's uh, cells could, could really improve my sight. So... I got very, very excited when I heard about the trial coming, and I was very fortunate to be the first person in the trial. How did that feel? I mean, going in, knowing that no one really had ever tested this before, this you were the first person to ever test this. Well, firstly, it was very exciting because I had been waiting 10 years since the other trial that I'd been in. And, and let me make a point here, and that is, when you do decide to be a trial participant, you know, part of me thinks it's better to be in the solution rather than the problem. So it gives me purpose and it gives me hope. But it also is very, very nerve-wracking in a sense because uh, especially being the first patient, I was the first patient not only in North, in North America and many parts of the world. So I had to sign my life away, you know, with 30 pages they give you to sign uh, explaining that, you know, you could have an immune problem, you could, it could you know, cause a tumor. There was just these all the disclaimers that you have to sign. But I was pretty confident after reading about Dr. Clausen's work that that wouldn't happen. And, and so I felt very grateful and purposeful when my friend Tom Sullivan, who's an actor and, and author called me that night and he said, my friend, you're now a pathfinder, you know, for doctors and other patients. And that made me feel so good that I was doing some good in the world that I could make some good out of this. I know the procedure itself was quite simple. It's an injection into the back of the eye. What kind of changes did you notice and when did you, how quickly did you notice them? Well, now mind you, it is simple, but I will tell you that in the beginning trial, they put you through about six hours of rigorous testing before you have the injection. So uh, it, it is definitely simple compared to many other procedures, but there's a lot that goes on for the patient to endure too. A lot of, um, you know, some stress and some uh, excitement all rolled into one. But for once, I was very happy I couldn't see the needle going into my eye. <laughs> what, what happened afterwards? What, did you notice any changes? When did you notice them? I noticed something about two and a half hours uh, into the, two and a half months, excuse me, two and a half months into the treatment. I walked into my bathroom and I noticed that, you know, I have those bright makeup lights and I, I still, with my vision, you know, just to explain to the audience that I, I still had sight. I never went into the dark, the complete darkness. But RP is kind of like a donut and looking at a beautiful painting and it slowly fades and fades and fades. So I still have vision and had vision, but it was fading. And I noticed how much brighter the world was that in my bathroom, those lights were just so bright. 
and that when I went outside, I suddenly needed sunglasses and then I could see the mascara wand, you know, on the right side. It's very helpful to a woman. <laughs> Putting on the <laughs> how, makeup. How is your vision see. today? Did it, has it continued to improve? I got a burst of light that maintained itself now for five years, which is pretty incredible because I only had a half a million cells in my left eye. And as you said in some of the questions you sent me, the first study is really for safety. And so even though it was just for safety, I always, I'm a big believer in boosting your immunity and your, your thoughts. And I read a lot of positive thinking books and I've read a lot of Norman Cousins books on how laughter can boost the immunity. So I kept thinking that even though if it was just for safety, I could get, I'm going to have something. This is going to do something for me. And it has, anything was a gift. It stabilized me for five years. I have a bright light. I call it the light at the end of the tunnel in my left eye. And in my right eye, I have maintained my vision. And I, I do have more acuity in that eye too, in little tiny islands. So it's a beginning. And now they're going to give me a larger dose in the next study because that's what they found is working with other people. So that's so exciting. How do you feel about that? That must be really, well, nerve wracking maybe, but also exciting, as you said. I'm so excited. I cannot tell you. I've waited so many years now and I have made a wonderful friendship with one of the other gals in the study, two people actually, but one of them who had a significant improvement, whom you know, Rosie Barrera. And, uh, and she is a fantastic friend. And just to see that she got such a boost with her eyesight, you know, now that she can see me on her FaceTime, on her iPad and on the cell phone, uh, out of the corner of her eye, you know, she, she had a significant improvement. And then just to see some of the other patients in the trial who can now read more letters on the eye chart, it's very, very encouraging. So they, they played with the doses and that taught me a lot about FDA studies and, and, uh, you know, how long they take to really get the test results. You really are a pathfinder. I mean, I know you've grown into the role and you've become a great champion uh, for stem cell research in general. You take this very seriously, don't you? I do. Absolutely. It's a big part of my life now. And I'm blessed to be involved with all these conferences and meet people like yourself, Americans for Cures. I mean, they've done so much. They've added so much to my life. I, I'm, I feel very, very blessed. And to be in California, all over the states now where they're, they're not doing clinical trials like this with stem cell. We are so lucky to be here, to have all these wonderful doctors and scientists because of CIRM come from all over the world to work here. Well, don't give up on your dream of becoming an actress and a talk show host. I think there's still a lot oh. of years left in you. So oh, thank you, Kristen, for joining us. Thank you, Kevin, and thank you, everyone else. So nice to be here today. I direct you to my disclosure statement. I do have a financial interest in what I'm going to present. Our retinal degenerations include a number of very differing diseases. One is retinitis pigmentosa RP, which will be of particular interest for this talk. Another is age-related macular degeneration, which is a more common disease, um, but less severe. Uh, RP starts as night blindness, progresses to tunnel vision, and eventually results in total blindness for the patients. But both of these diseases and all retinal degenerations have in common the loss of photoreceptors, which are the rods and cones at the back of the retina. Um, and these cells are lost over the course of disease progression, and this results in the inability to see. Now, from a treatment perspective, as a cell treatment person, 
I have to ask the question, am I going to try to replace these photoreceptors or am I going to try to use the cells to employ neuroprotection? And in our case, we decided to go with neuroprotection. So that's the idea that we can rescue the photoreceptors that are in the host eye. And here I want to divide between the rods and the cones. It's the rods that are expressing the mutant disease genes, and these are the cells that degenerate first. However, rods are mainly just important for night vision, so if the disease stopped with rod degeneration, the patients would not actually go completely blind. Uh, it's the later involvement of the cone photoreceptors, which subserve the majority of human visual function, uh, that are critical to the disease progression uh, when the cones, which do not express the mutant gene, are lost late in the course of RP, um, this results in severe visual def deficits for the patients. Now, if we could protect these cones that are not expressing the mutant gene, then we could have a huge impact on the problem. Now, which cells are we going to employ? Uh, we could use true stem cells, uh, such as you see on the left, such as the embryonic stem cells and induced pluripotent cells that are very popular. However, we focused on the use of the retinal progenitor, which is a tissue-specific cell found only in the developing retina. These cells are restricted to making cell types uh, that are found later in the retina. They do not make other cell types such as blood, muscle, or pancreas, um, but that's okay for our purposes. Now here's proof of principle in an animal model. On the left, you see an image of the treatment paradigm where the cells uh, seen in red are injected into the vitreous cavity of the eye. That's the large gel-filled space behind the lens and in front of the retina. The cells cluster to form these uh, neurospheres that um, survive for a period of time in the retina. And from there, they can exude their trophic factors which are going to have the therapeutic effect on the photoreceptors. Now, a retina taken from a RCS rat is seen in the central image. Um, these rats undergo a photoreceptor degeneration much as seen in RP. Um, and now we segregate our rats into treated and untreated. And at the upper right is the on-foss image from a retina of a control animal and you just don't see anything, and that's because the photoreceptors have all died and gone away. Uh, whereas in the lower right, you see a lot of uh, red and green dots. These are profiles that correspond to uh, rods and middle wavelength cone photoreceptors, respectively. So uh, by comparing the two, you can see that the treated eyes have uh, considerably more residual photoreceptors than do the untreated. So that's the evidence of a treatment effect. Uh, we back up this evidence with evidence of a functional improvement in these animals, and that's seen both through something called an optimotor response uh, in the upper image, as well as an electroretinogram seen in the lower image. Now we move on to our patients, and here I give you an overview of what we're attempting to do in the patients and pointing some of the highlights of this therapeutic approach versus other potential approaches. Now we're gonna use these retinal progenitor cells 
These are an allogeneic product. They can be taken from one unrelated donor and given to multiple recipients. As seen with these frozen vials here, the disease target is retinitis pigmentosa. The delivery is through intraocular injection, just as was seen in the rats, into the vitreous cavity. This can be performed in the office setting using topical numbing drops. And despite the fact that this is an allogeneic product, it can be given without immune suppression. That's the equivalent of getting a blood transfusion without the need to tissue type the blood. Uh, the mechanism of action here is neurotrophic as opposed to cell replacement as I previously described. Here's the setting of the initial clinical trial. This is when Kristen was getting treated. Uh, we enrolled our patients starting in June of 2015. Uh, the trial was completed by August of 2017 and all of the 28 patients in the initial trial completed that study. This product was well tolerated and importantly, there were no immune issues. Uh, here's the visual output from these patients. Um, we've segregated the data in terms of the different doses and compared to the fellow eye. Uh, the point is the treated looked somewhat better and was particularly prominent for the highest dose, the 3 million dose. Uh, we had a benefit of nine letters on average in treated eyes over untreated eyes. Uh, that's quite a large response. Um, again, this was an open-label study in small group of patients, uh, but the FDA encouraged us to explore a higher dose. So we entered the people who had completed the first trial in an extension trial, and here you see Rosie. We followed these patients for a longer term, and these patients were allowed the option of being redosed in the fellow eye. Uh, 24 out of 28 of the patients were redosed. And again, despite being dosed in a second eye, uh, there were still no immune-related issues uh, related to this treatment. Um, that allowed us to move into phase 2B. Uh, this is a much larger study uh, involving a total of 84 patients. They were divided into three different dose types, 6 million cells, 3 million cells, and mock injection, which was the essentially uh, the equivalent of a, a placebo effect. Again, we were looking at visual acuity at 12 months, although we included some other endpoints. And uh, we completed the first aspect of this trial uh, in fall of last year, uh, although patients have crossed over into the treatment effect from the mock injection uh, following completion. Um, but looking at these initial data from the uh, tw initial 12-month study, we see that there was, again, a very well-tolerated product, good safety, um, consistent with what we saw in the first trial. Um, we also saw a prominent response in the highest dose, that being the 6 million dose, and uh, looked at more carefully, we see a nice relationship between the uh, proposed mechanism of action, the retinal anatomy, and test performance across the different um, other endpoints. So taken together, there's a nice uh, amount of information that we got from this 
that positions us very well to embark on a phase three study. I'd like to thank everybody, particularly CIRM, who's been an excellent partner at every step of the process, as well as the people from my lab and the clinical folks who carried out the clinical trials testing, as well as people on the corporate side at JSITE. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm, I'm very excited to be at this meeting and to talk about the work that we are doing at Stanford in partnership with CIRM. Um, the title of my grant is called New Bright, a purified allogenic cell therapy product for the treatment of dry age-related macular degeneration. And I'd like to start by telling you a bit about myself. I practice retina and retina diseases at Stanford University Medical Center. And here you can see the clinic building called the Byers Eye Institute at Stanford, where we see patients every day. And you can see me here in the clinic uh, with my N95 mask on, given the pandemic state these days. Uh, I see about 100 patients a week in the clinic. I also perform surgery in the operating room, treating uh, retinal diseases like retinal detachments and bleeding due to conditions such as diabetes. And through this experience, I see people every day. I see Californians every day that have debilitating and blinding diseases of the macula, such as macular degeneration. And this is the motivation for why I embarked on this research project. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little story about uh, what I do, and that's translational research. And what that means to me is taking knowledge and technology, uh, which um, has been discovered by brilliant scientists, such as my partner here, Irv Weissman, you can see in the photo, and bring that technology to a state that can be used in, in people to help cure blindness. And the disease that we're focusing on today is called age-related macular degeneration, or AMD. Um, and AMD is the leading cause of blindness in the United States, especially in our elderly population. There are two forms which you may have heard of. There is a wet or exudative form, um, which affects about 15% of these patients. And in the photo you see below there, you see red things in the back of the eye, which is bleeding under the retina, which causes rapid vision loss. There is also a dry or non-exudative form of this disease, which affects the majority of people, about 85%. And in this state, uh, disease, there is an advanced form called geographic atrophy, or GA. On the fundus photo on the right here, you can see a whitish area highlighted by these green arrows, which is the GA in the center of the macula, which is the center of your vision that you use to read with. And when you get this GA, you can no longer see in that area. It's kind of like having a big dead pixel in the center of your screen. Now, GA affects about 5 million patients in the United States, which equates to about 620,000 Californians that are suffering from this disease right now. Now, the good part about AMD is that the wet form that I mentioned first, where you have abnormal bleeding, has a very effective treatment. You might have heard of these eye injections, which go into the eye, provide medication to the back, stop the bleeding. And in fact, um, in clinical trials, you can see here the red and the orange lines up top show vision after the treatment with these medications. The vision goes up, it improves, and it maintains that improvement over many years. This is showing two years worth of data using these drugs, whereas the green line below is the non-treatment arm. 
showing loss of vision that's maintained over two years. So that's good news for the patients with wet AMD. What about the patients with GA or dry AMD? Well, unfortunately, there is no effective treatment for this form of macular degeneration, and that's why we've imparted on this research. So to give you a pictorial view of what's happening here, if you look at the bottom, on the left-hand panel, you see a normal eye, a normal photo, and a normal cross-sectional cartoon there with photoreceptors and light-sensing cells of the eye, as well as some RPE or pigmented cells in the back of the eye. Well, in GA, on the right-hand panel there, you see that the RPE are starting to die. And because they are starting to die, the photoreceptors, the light-sensing cells of the eye, subsequently die as well. And this leads to vision loss. So as the area of geographic atrophy grows, we end up with vision loss. You can see here in a photographic progression over time in these black and white photos, the areas of GA here highlighted by the red arrows. Over time, that area of GA will grow. And as that patch of GA grows, we lose the ability to see in those areas. So enter the neural stem cell. This is derived from human tissue. They are multipotent, meaning they can become different cellular types of the central nervous system, but nothing else. And they will be used in this translational medicine approach here to restore and support the function of the eye. So our goal here in very broad terms is to take these stem cells, put them under the retina, and then allow those cells to restore the function of the photoreceptors and allow patients to see better again. That is our long-term goal. So let's talk a little bit more about these cells. So there are many mechanisms by which stem cells in this setting could help people. There's something called neurogenesis, where the cells themselves will become replacement cells like neurons and supporting cells like oligodendrocytes. These neural stem cells can also um, help with regeneration of lost cells and the connections between them. And lastly, neural stem cells can also perform a neuroprotection role, meaning they preserve the disease cells by secreting neurotrophic factors, which you can think of as hormones and other chemicals that help to stimulate and support the growth and life of the existing cells, or maybe repair and bring back to health cells that are not doing so well. To date, we've performed several animal studies, and I'll go through some of those now with you. The first is that these neural stem cells, which are highlighted here in the fluorescent green, um, migrate under the retina. So when we put them under the retina in these animals, they not only survive up to 120 days in this example, but they also spread out. And you can see why this might be important in disease such as geographic atrophy, where you have a spreading area of loss of cells. So if we could put cells in one small area, they can actually spread out and cover the entire area that's missing cells. On the top here, we have an animal model showing what happens when photoreceptors die. So you have in the um, red dashed lines here, these cells of the photoreceptors. And over time, in this animal model, the cells naturally die. You can see here by 240 days, all those cells are gone. All these gray cells here on the left side are gone. Well, below, we have a treated rat with our stem cells, which are here in the dark purple. And you can see that out to 240 days, the purple circular cells, which are the photoreceptors, 
and the supporting cells still continue to survive. So we see here an anatomic preservation of cells that normally would die in this animal model of renal disease, which is very exciting. Um, and we've shown that these cells can preserve the presence of the photoreceptors out to 240 days. And by then, these cells would have surely been gone in the control animals. So that was a very positive result. So this is some indication in our animal model that there is preservation of anatomy in this disease. Um, can anatomy lead to improved function? That's our second question that we want to ask. So in this experiment, which is called a luminance threshold, meaning the ability for the retina to sense light at different intensities, we put the cells under the eyes of these rats and then measured the sensitivity of the eyes. The green diamonds here you can see have the highest sensitivity when compared to the rats that did not have any cells um, in the blue squares on this thing. You can see here that in this experiment, the, the implantation of the neural stem cells um, not only improved the anatomical preservation of the photoreceptors, but it also allowed the animal to sense light more sensitively. Here is another measure of function. We have a rodent here on the right-hand panel in this video inside a little contraption where little lines are being shown to it as it, and we measure the rat's ability to see motion on this. So uh, again, we have the green diamonds on top of this graph here on the left, showing the ability of the rodent to maintain vision functionally um, over time out to 240 days. And then the control uh, eyes are in the um, blue triangles here that did not get the cells. And those rats predictably lost their ability to detect this motion uh, over time. So our cells, at least in this animal model here, have shown the ability to preserve um, sensitivity as well as the ability to sense motion in these animals, which is very exciting. Um, we were fortunate to embark on some clinical trials in humans a few years ago using these cells. Here I am in the operating room performing surgery on a person. In this red circle here is the needle, the silvery optics here going under the retina, and we're actually infusing a million neural stem cells under the retina. And um, once the cells are in the uh, correct place, you can see a little blister of fluid there under the retina. And I'll show you one last wide field shot here in this circle. You see the little bubble there, it looks like a blister, which is a, a little bubble of neural stem cells, which is under this patient's retina. And um, you know we follow these patients over uh, two years to see how they did. So how do we figure out if there's a positive effect from these cells? Well, we have to look at what is the natural history, meaning what happens normally to patients with geographic atrophy. And one, uh, we talked earlier about how the GA progresses over time. The area grows like a burning brush fire in the back of the eye, and the area expands over time. The interesting thing, which has been studied uh, in the multiple government-funded studies, is that the amount of area between the right eye and the left eye of the same patient is approximately the same. So you can see here a, 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 a diagonal line in this graph and a bunch of black dots, which plots the growth of the right eye versus the left eye. And you can see it follows this kind of middle curve very nicely. So when we take a look at the results from our clinical trial, we have a similar diagonal line here. And 
if the area of geographic atrophy grows faster in the eye that we put the cells in, you would see the dots above this diagonal line. But if the GA grows slower in the study eye and the eye that got the cells, then you would see the dots below the diagonal line. And what we found in our initial pilot studies was that most of the eyes that got the cells had a slower growing rate of geographic atrophy than their fellow eye, meaning the other eye in the patient. And this was a very exciting outcome for us. Now, because this was a pilot phase one study, um, it was not powered or designed to detect an efficacious result. We were only looking for safety, but it was very encouraging for us to see um, this hint at potential efficacy of the cells in these patients. Uh, moreover, when we follow the patients out to a year in this, in this graph here, and their vision is uh, on the left here when they started and on the right when they ended a year later, we can see that most of the, if not all of these lines had improvement in the measurement of vision, which again was a very exciting result for us. And the study, again, was not powered or designed to measure improvement in vision or efficacy, but this is definitely an encouraging sign for these cells. So in conclusion, human neural stem cells definitely can survive after transplantation and they were well tolerated in uh, these initial studies. There is evidence that the visual function can be restored in animals and potentially in humans. And lastly, more work should be done with these cells. So that brings us to what we're doing now. And I'm so grateful and thankful for the funding from California Stem Cell Agency so that we can do the work that we're doing now. Um, I showed you this beautiful photo earlier on the right top right here of the neurospheres of neural stem cells. And what this actually is, is a little ball of cells of these, of these 150 or so neural stem cells, which grow in culture in this, in this beautiful fashion. But from a practical standpoint, if we are actually wanting to use these cells in people and or in animals, it would be much better if these cells were grown in a single cell suspension. So not in these little balls of 150 cells, but individual cells. Um, that would make the surgery safer because we use a smaller needle to get in the back of the eye. It would make the surgery easier and faster. And it might also allow the cells to spread out better and be more efficacious under the retinal surface. So what we are currently doing right now is reformulating these cells as a single cell suspension, and that work is going really well. We were able to grow the cells as a single cell suspension with our new uh, techniques that we've developed in the laboratory. And um, we are in the process of testing these new formulation of the cells, the single cells in the animal models that I mentioned to you earlier. Uh, we are also optimizing and confirming the stem cell identity and differentiation. And the ultimate goal uh, for um, our current grant from CIRM is to end up with a meeting with the, with the regulatory agency, the FDA, to uh, get an IND filed so that we can begin to go into humans again into clinical trials. And, uh, you know, our ultimate goal is to really reach out and be able to affect the lives of the 620,000 Californians out there that have this uh, slowly progressive and debilitating and blind disease of the eye and to really help with uh, people's everyday function and their ability to to enjoy life and uh, spend the time with their loved ones. So I'd like to acknowledge um, this very 
broad and collaborative team that I've worked with uh, all, all these years. We have um, collaborators and colleagues on the Stanford campus. We have people up in Oregon. We have people down in Texas. We have um, collaborators down in Pasadena, California as well. So, you know, from all of us to you, thank you so much for allowing me to speak to you today and tell you a little bit about the things that we're doing at Stanford. And thank you again to CERM for your support. I would like to thank the organizers for giving me the opportunity to share our work uh, to develop uh, this limbo stem cell therapy. My presentation will be divided into four parts, background, then development of the therapeutic candidate, followed by development of the outcome measure, and finally, uh, the phase one clinical trial design. Cornea is the transparent part of the eye is lined by epithelium, and this epithelium is maintained by a group of adult stem cells that reside in the limbus, which is junction between the cornea and conjunctiva. In the basal layer of the limbal epithelium, and those are the layer harbors these group of stem cells. When they are deficient or lack of functional stem cells, that lead to a disease entity called limbal stem cell deficiency. The presentation of this disease varies based on the degree of the limbal stem cell deficiency. In partial disease, only a sector of the cornea and limbus is affected. In total limbal stem cell deficiency, the entire cornea is affected. Cornea transplant does not treat limbal stem cell deficiency. In eyes with normal stem cell function, the graph can remain clear and survive for a longer time. But in eyes with limbal stem cell deficiency, the graph usually fails within a couple of years. The cause of limbal stem cell deficiency could be due to genetic disorders or due to injury. And any injuries to the limbus can lead to stem cell deficiency which include chemical injury, continuous wear, or chronic inflammation. It's not until recently that uh, the first global consensus on this disease entity was developed. There are four take-home messages. The first is that the hallmark of the disease is the cornea epithelium uh, is replaced by the conjunctiva epithelium. The second is that a diagnostic test is recommended in addition to clinical exam. Third, autologous stem cell therapy is preferred over allogeneic therapy. And lastly, uh, limbal stem cell treatment is preferred over keratoprothesis, uh, which is artificial cornea. We also conducted a uh, meta-analysis on the outcomes of uh, limbal stem cell transplant. We found that um, autologous limbal stem cell transplant had a higher success rate and lower complication rate than did allogeneic transplant. And the long-term success rate is below 76%. The criteria of diagnosing and staging limbal stem cell deficiency and the outcome measure of any treatment vary greatly among all studies. And we concluded that randomized controlled clinical trials are necessary to compare the efficacy among different therapies. 
The first approved stem cell therapy was first reported back in 1997. In this first trial of therapy, a small biopsy was taken from the donor eye, which is the healthy eye, and these stem cells were then expanded in the dish and then uh, transplanted onto the uh, other eye, which is disease eye, and the ocular surface was restored. Uh, the therapy uh, was approved by uh, U- the European uh, Medicine Agency uh, called Holoclear. There are several disadvantages of this therapy. First, it requires um, animal products. Second, it, uh, it treats mostly unilateral disease and um, it lacks a standardized outcome measure. And the success rate, again, um, was limited to uh, 76% with repeated treatment. So looking forward, um, we uh, think that the therapy um, should be safe, which means that uh, it should eliminate animal products to avoid cross-contamination. It should be efficient, which means that the expansion of the stem cell population in culture uh, should allow for a higher success rate. And third, it should be very effective. That means a higher long-term survival of these transplant cells. So in the next session, we want to share with you how we develop a uh, new therapy using cultivated autologous limbo stem cells. We focus on the um, manufacturing process of these autologous cultivated limbo stem cells. We want it to be feasible, efficient, and GMP compliant and xenofree. To achieve that, we optimize the culturing uh, process by improving the following categories. First is the starting material, which means that when the tissue is biopsy, how do we uh, culture these stem cells from the biopsy? Uh, secondly, are the supporting cells, feeder cells any, that will increase the uh, efficiency of the expansion of the stem cell population? And third, uh, how can we ensure the culture substrate or the transplant substrate safe and effective? And next, the culture media, how can we make it uh, xenobiotic free? And lastly, is the way that the cells are cultured and how can we uh, recreate the in vivo limbo stem cell niche? So after comparing more than 70 different culture methods and you finally develop a xenobiotic-free and feeder-free culture system, by uh, preserving the native stem cell niche during culture and then replacing the fetal bovine serum with human serum and also uh, removal of uh, the DMSO and cholera toxin during this process. Uh, next, uh, to comply with the regulatory requirement, we also develop uh, IPCs in process controls and also release criteria so that we ensure the quality of the uh, cultivated uh, limbo stem cells. Next, I'm going to talk about the development of standardized clinical outcome measures. Clinical presentations might not reflect the actual stem cell function and a quantitative staging system is still lacking and needs to be developed to quantify in vivo limbo stem cell function and outcomes of the stem cell treatment.
we utilize a very powerful uh, in vivo imaging, in vivo confocal microscopy. It can image all layers of the cornea, different layers of the epithelium, and the junction of the conjunctiva and cornea, which is the limbus. You first set out to look into um, the microstructural changes of the epithelium by imaging the central cornea and four regions of the limbus. Even in earlier stage, the epithelial cells become larger and the nuclei become more prominent. These changes, we call it metaplastic change, change um, become more apparent in the intermediate stage and the cells with normal-looking cornea phenotype are missing in the eyes with late stage. A similar picture is seen in the limbal regions. Uh, often we see an influx of inflammatory cells. At the same time, we also develop a quantitative clinical scoring system that takes into consideration of the extent of the limbal and corneal involvement as well as the central involvement. And each eye will be giving a number to quantify the degree of the clinical degree. We look into 24 in vivo parameters of eyes with limbo stem cell deficiency, basal cell density, epithelial thickness in five locations of the ocular surface, central cornea, and four regions of the limbus, cell morphology, central corneal subbasal nerve density, and nerve branch uh, scores. The basal cell density decrease in the eyes with limbal stem cell deficiency in the, both the central cornea and the limbus. The degrees of decrease correlate with the degree of the severity of the disease. Epithelial thinning also was uh, detected in eyes with the stem cell deficiency. In normal eyes, the epithelium is visualized by another in vivo imaging um, modality, anterior segment OCT, optical coherence tomography. In eyes with uh, stem cell deficiency, the layer of this epithelium becomes thinner and often absent in advanced stage of limbo stem cell deficiency. And the decline of subbasal nerve density was also observed. Again, the degree of decline has positive correlation with the degree of the deficiency. A, a molecular diagnostic test also is essential uh, to confirm uh, the diagnosis of limbo stem cell deficiency. We found that curvatin 13 is a specific marker of the conjunctival epithelium. Uh, by sampling the ocular surface on the cornea, on the conjunctiva, and the cells can be subject to immunohistochemistry staining and K13 positive cells uh, on the cornea uh, could signify uh, limbo stem cell deficiency. So, Based on our finding, uh, we include clinical scores, basal cell density, subbasal nerve density, epithelial thickness of the central cornea, and molecular diagnostic tests using keratin-13 as a marker could be used to diagnose and stage 
limbo stem cell deficiency. And this criteria will be used as outcome measure of our ongoing uh, limbo stem cell uh, trial. In this last session, I will introduce you to our phase one clinical trial. The purpose of this clinical study is to investigate the safety and feasibility, hopefully part of the also efficacy of our cultivated autologous limbo stem cells for the treatment of limbo stem cell deficiency. We also want to validate the limbo stem cell deficiency diagnostic criteria and quantitative sizing system. This is a randomized controlled phase one clinical trial at a single center. 20 subjects will be recruited. The first five will undergo limbo stem cell treatment and the subsequent 15 will be randomized uh, in a two to one ratio into the stem cell treatment or the skirt lens uh, treatment group. This subject will be undergoed uh, screening um, using the clinical grading system, the in vivo imaging and molecular dynasty test to determine the degree of their limbo symptom deficiency. If they meet the inclusion criteria, the biopsy will be taken from the donor eye, grow them in culture, and then transplant it back to uh, the other eye, the disease eye. The control will be a scleral lens treatment group. You can contact our study coordinator through email or to me if you uh, need additional information and the trial is registered uh, at the clinicaltrials.gov. I would like to thank um, my teams who have contributed to the work that I have presented. Sheila Gonzalez is the project manager who um, developed the xenofree and feeder-free uh, culturing system. Alan Pascal uh, is our clinical research center uh, administrator who um, helped us tremendously in the entire project. Uh, Alpha Stem Cell Clinic and the Stem Cell Center at UCLA um, have um, assisted us on the R&D preparation. Uh, Dr. Donald Kong um, is the director of the GMP facility, and he has helped us greatly on the GMP tech transfer and also the GMP manufacturing of our product. The project has been funded from the infancy uh, by the um, California Stem Cell Agency, as well as the National Eye Institute. And uh, the other funding agency also contribute uh, to the beginning of the project. Thank you very much for your attention. Let me start off with uh, one question that, that came in for you, Henry. Uh, and, um, and the question is, would this treatment be beneficial for other retinal diseases where the RPE cells are affected first, such as Stargardt's or dry macular degeneration? In terms of animal data, um, we do have some indications that these cells have neuroprotective effects on other cell types other than photoreceptors. Obviously, photoreceptors are involved in these other conditions, so based on that alone, you might think that maybe they could help. Um, but we, we believe that these cells can have cytoprotective effects on other cell types, both neuronal and even some non-neuronal populations. 
Whether that extends to the RPE, I, I really can't say. Um, but um, also based on the, um, the safety and what we've seen in patients, um, that's encouraging too, um, that at least there might be a low bar for testing in other disease conditions. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, another question, and, and maybe this is for both uh, Ted and uh, Henry. Um, the, the person says that her, his or her 96-year-old grandma has dry macular degeneration. Could she still be considered a candidate for receiving cells in a trial? Uh, Ted, do you want to comment on that? Sure. Um, thanks for having me again. Um, so currently we're not in the clinical phase of our program, um, but in the past when we did do human trials, uh, we did enroll patients over 90 years old. So um, someone in their mid to late 90s is still a potential candidate. I think one of the um, uh, concerns that we had in the phase one that we did was some of the dose-limiting toxicities from the uh, immune suppression from uh, the trial. And so if, if people have underlying medical disease, that could limit the p- potential participation. But inherently, there's no um, issue with um, someone being 96 or 98 enrolling in our trials. All right. Henry. Thank you. Uh, and Henry, in your trial, were there older patients in, in your RP trial? Yeah, we didn't actually restrict in terms of age. Now, you know, it's intuitive that as one gets older, the regenerative capacities in parents, such as they are, are tend to dwindle. Um, but uh, we didn't restrict in those terms. So at this point, we don't have an age cutoff. All right. Uh, I, I had a question for, for Sophie in terms of the uh, stem cell deficiency disease that you described and, and the autologous transfer, does that mean you're, it, it's only patients with unilateral disease and are, are there pa- patients that get both eyes affected? That's a great question. <laughs> I did at the time limitation, I had to eliminate that power talk. Um, the beauty about this in vivo confocal microscopy is that it can detect any residual stem cells in the eye. And over the years, um, when we scan all these um, eyes over 150, we found that often in eyes that present with severe or total uh, stem cell deficiency, just by clinical um, uh, measurement, and we are able to find residual stem cells in those eyes. So that means that we can expand uh, the treatment to bilateral disease, uh, either transplanted to the um, same eye or the other eye. Uh, depends on the need of this uh, patient. So um, I think that uh, because this uh, powerful imaging system, uh, we should be able to treat uh, more than 80% of this population. I see. Great, thank you. Yeah, speaking of, of imaging, uh, that was really impressive, the images you showed with the confocal of the cornea. And of course, the cornea is on the surface of the eye. I was wondering... And this is a question for both Henry and for Ted. If, if uh, in your clinical trial, could you image the cells that you transplanted 
and follow them over the course of the transplantation, maybe starting with you, Henry, in the middle of the eye. Can you see right. this up? Um, in our case, it's kind of easy because um, with uh, standard microscopy that ophthalmologists employ on a daily basis, they can look through the dilated pupil and see uh, the cells that have been transplanted just kind of floating there in the vitreous. Um, so it's easy for the clinician to identify the graph. Now, there's a few caveats. One is that photographing that could be a little more tricky because most photography is designed to image things either on the retina or in the front of the eye somewhere, so that um, this is kind of a no man's land, um, but it can be done. Um, the other thing is that although it's pretty clear where the graft is and it looks distinct, um, normally, if you look in somebody's eyes, there's no cell graft unless somebody put it there. Um, by the same token, these cells are not labeled. So as such, you can't 100% identify them. And the reason that's important is because what we see in the animal model is that immune cells do come from the host retina, and they explore the graft, and they're actively investigating what's going on there. So I think there can be a slight haze it's an overlay that's of host origin, not donor cell origin. But by those neurospheres uh, floating there in the vitreous, it's pretty obvious what you're looking at and where they came from. And, and Ted, how about your experience with your trial? Um, you know, unlike Henry's uh, cells being in the mid-vitreous cavity, um, we would love to be able to visualize the cells under the retina. Um, you know, on biomicroscopy examination or fundus photographic examination, we are, we were not able to to see the cells in this subretinal space. We tried a high resolution OCT optical coherence tomography scans, also um, unable to detect the cells uh, even on postoperative day one. Um, the, uh, the the thing that we are um, contemplating bringing into the next uh, clinical phase is to to use adaptive optics imaging. And we're fortunate to have uh, one of the world's leading adaptive optics uh, experts at Stanford with us. And so he is um, going to be one of our collaborators to, to look for those cells under the retina. Um, unfortunately, we cannot modify the cells for human use. And so you can't, you know, tag them with a fluorescent protein or something, be able to image them, even though that's something that we would like to do. Um, we are planning on doing uh, GFP labeling, though, in our animal models to see um, the cells in vivo uh, prior to sacrificing and looking at histology. I see. Yeah. Yeah. That, that seems like that would be a useful thing for a number of cell therapy trials, some way to label the cells. And, and that does make it, uh, it I mean, it's a higher bar to get it, get it approved by the FDA. And uh, if there was uh, a good way to do that, that would be a great advance, I think, for cell therapies in general. Um, I had a question for Sophie related to cells. How, how many cells would you plan to uh, transplant in your clinical trial? So um, this is a great question. Um, we would like to transplant as many stem cells as possible, but we cannot tell um, in this heterogeneous population, the cell sheet that we, count, we um, generated, um, how many of them are truly stem cells by looking at it without um, 
labeling them. So, um, so at the first phase one, uh, we will just go by the size. The cornea size is about uh, 11 to 12 millimeter in diameter. So our plan is to try once the the graft or the cell should reach um, 13 millimeter, then the graft will be released from the manufacturing and then we transplant onto the eye. We hope to have a little bit of left over from the graft to um, uh, analyze the phenotype of these cells so that we can develop a potency assay, which is required uh, in a um, phase one clinical trial. So that's what we uh, plan to do. So we cannot give you a number of the cells, but can give you a size of the graft. I see, I see, interesting. And I think Henry, you said you were uh, you were doing three million, but now you're going to increase the number of, of cells in the next trial. We did um, changes cells from half million up to three million, and yes, the uh, FDA did encourage us to go to a higher dose. So in two B, we we did the three million again and a six million, um, so doubled the dose, um, and that's where we saw most of the action in that trial. Um, but we're, we're kind of running into limitations in terms of how many cells we can put into an eye using a, a simple injection in an office. And obviously, there's a lot of room in the eye for cells, um, but in terms of doing it the easy way, um, we're, we're getting close to the feasibility limit. Dennis, can I, can I ask a quick question? Is Clive? Yeah, sure. Clive, go ahead. Henry, what happened? What do you think happens to your cells? You know, the four million cells over time. Do they just disperse, or do they die, or and what, what goes yeah, on? Good question. Well, um, yeah. So they time. So both in the animal models and in the humans, where we, we can directly observe them, uh, we can see that they persist uh, for over the year course of the study. Um, eventually, they start to go away. Um, when they go away, uh, they, they're gone, and they leave behind a, a clear vitreous cavity, which is easily verified by the ophthalmologist. Um, we know, as I said earlier, that the grafts are patrolled by uh, host immune cells, and this is largely dominated by macrophage, mononuclear-type cells. Um, and so my hypothesis is that those cells are there, uh, one of the main things they do while they're in the vicinity of the graft is they're cleaning out dead cells. I think there's a, a continuous attrition of cells over the duration of the time that they're in the eye. Of course, these cells are in the vitreous, so they're not integrating into the tissue. They're not becoming vascularized. Um, it is a permissive environment, but it's not ideal uh, for survival long-term. So eventually the cells just go away. Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting that, uh, I mean, you said there were no immune problems in, in the patients, but, but you think there, there are macrophages that are going in and, and maybe clearing out the transplanted cells. Right. I mean, um, you know, there's this whole immune thing is a complicated story that I don't think has been fully worked out. Um, but early on, some people speculated that the eye was immune privileged, and it might be because you know early thoughts were that maybe the immune system can't go into the vitreous, or maybe it's um, 
just can't recognize the cells or something. But it seems like none of the above are really the case. The cells are identified by the immune system in that they're attracted to these cells. They're actively investigating the graft based on the fact that they're focally present um, in high concentrations. And yet the graft persists. It slowly goes down. Some people might argue that's an immune response. Well, you know, I think, I think of it as just the cells are dying off. The immune cells are there to pick up the pieces. Whether they, if they're doing a job where they're killing cells, they're sure taking their time because it's, okay. it's taking over a year to do it. So, um, you know, we can leave that up to debate, but uh, it's certainly not a classic immune rejection type response. I see. I see. Well, and if, if they go away slowly after a year, can the injections be repeated for improvement? Well, that's one of the beauties of an intravitreal injection is that you can, we know ophthalmologically that people can receive repeated intravitreal injections. Uh, that's how the, the drugs for a wet AMD are delivered. And so that's a possibility, at least theoretically. What we've done to look at this in terms of patients is, first, we've looked at a mouse model um, because you have to look at this in an allogeneic setting and you have to do it in an immune-competent host. So we couldn't use our product. What we did is we have the mouse uh, retinal progenitor cells. We can put them into immunocompetent uh, allogeneic rat, uh, mice and then look for response to repeat treatment and there that's how we know they're macrophages so we did repeat injections of cells either in the other eye or into the same eye uh, different injections and again we didn't see a diminished size of the graft relative to controls so that's what we're basing it on now for humans we're about to initiate a follow-up trial um, in patients who've already been dosed, where we're going to do repeat injections in a previously dosed eye, and that's really going to get directly to this question. Thank you. And, and Ted, uh, what about your experience? Uh, any sign of immune rejection of the transplanted cells? Uh, there was no sign in our initial um, studies. Um, you know, we did use a um, immune suppression protocol that we um, modified from organ transplantation and at a much lower dose than you'd normally have of, of blood levels of those drugs. Um, in our next um, clinical phase, we are planning to use local immune suppression. So one thing we're looking at is um, longer acting uh, devices that are eluding steroids, which would suppress the local immune system in inside the eye. Um, and so maybe Henry, that's something you might want to look at as well. We have some dexamethasone implants that are, you know, some last as long as three years that you could potentially inject simultaneously as your cells into the vitreous and, and see that, uh, that helps to, uh, potentiate the macrophage, um, uh, activity. And so we are, we're going to be looking at that in our model as well, both in the animal model and then eventually into the humans, um, again, which will be really exciting. Very exciting. Yeah, that, that, um, that sounds very promising. I, I know in the session earlier uh, that Clive was leading, and Clive mentioned that some of the patients involved in the trial had passed away. And in terms of finding 
your transplanted cells, that might be a real opportunity. Uh, has has that happened in any of any of these trials for either Ted or Henry? Not in ours. Um, no, not in ours either. No. Okay. Okay. But yeah, then you have a lot more opportunity to do histology and see where the cells are. Yeah, I, I, I heard the conversation, Dennis. It's really a challenge for everybody, even if the patient does pass, finding the cells. In the eye, it's nice because you have, you know, you know where they shouldn't be, <laughs> if there's a right. layer there in Ted's case anyway. Uh, you should see them. Right. I, I do want to ask, say quickly, where are your cells coming from now? Is it IPS-derived or is it still fetal-derived, the stem cells, Inc. company? Is it kind of the same cells that they were using? Or where are you deriving your cells, the neuroprogenitors, from? Yeah, they're from, they're not uh, IPS. They're, they're from brain tissue itself. So it's derived from, um, you know, from brain. Fetal, fetal brain tissue. Well, it's not, it's not fetal. It's, they're adult stem cells, so they're a little bit further along than just the fetus. Hmm. Okay. And, and um, that, that brings up another question that I had in, in thinking about all the patients with dry AMD, you know, uh, 600,000 in California alone. Uh, what about the CMC aspect and making enough cells for all those patients? Is that something that's feasible? Uh, I certainly do think it's feasible. With each of the the cell banks that we have, we can derive multiple doses. And so, um, you know, previously we were um, working both on eye and neurological disease. And for the neurological diseases, just give you a, um, a reference, the scale was several orders of magnitude higher in cell dose than we were doing for the eye. And uh, we were able to manufacture enough cells for, you know, infusions into the fecal and the subdural or subarachnoid space for those trials. But for the, for the eye, we're using a much, much lower dose. And so uh, one cell bank goes much farther along than it, than it does in the neurosurgical trials. I see. And do the, do the cell banks come from multiple donors? Do you mix multiple donor samples to make the cell um, no, we're not currently mixing multiple donor samples. So, I, you know, each of the master cell banks come from one donor, um, which then derive multiple working cell banks. Um, and we would go back and, and harvest new uh, donor and create new cell banks uh, from that individual donor. And same, same question for you, Henry. Uh, do you feel like it's feasible to make uh, enough cells to treat patients using your cells? Well, uh, so the, the clinical cells we used in our initial trials were generated in a kind of low volume method. Um, but remember, this is, uh, we're treating an orphan disease here. So um, we have ways of scaling this up, I think, sufficient to approach something like RP. Now, uh, you know, if this has applicability to common diseases, including dry MD, um, then it would be easy for the um, demand to outstrip the supply. Um, but that's where I think pluripotent technologies could come into play. So that's, that's still on our radar in the bigger scheme of things. Mm -hmm. And Sophie, you talked a, a bit about uh, your approach. And of course, being autologous, it's a, it's a little bit different. So each each patient would require a preparation and you were talking about making the size of the graph. So very different type of approach. Um, another question from the, the audience uh, for Henry, 
Uh, do you have any clues as to the factors that are being secreted by the progenitor cells that might be saving the cones or improving vision? Well, that's a good question. We believe that there's a cocktail effect. So um, we've looked at what our cells express. We've compared it to the literature. Um, we've compared what our cells express to other cell types. Um, we believe osteopontin plays a key role here. Um, but we think it's a cocktail effect where other uh, factors are contributing. Um, but what this does is it allows for a neuroprotective effect with relatively lower concentrations of factors than would um, be the case in, say, a situation where you modify the cells to deliver uh, a growth factor through gene transfer Typically, those cells are going to overexpress at pretty high levels, um, whereas here we can get effects with lower levels of, of proteins that are regulated by the cells themselves. Um, the reason I bring that up is because um, in my looking at the, the literature on uh, neurotrophic factors and, and the experience in the lab is that this is these factors are kind of like a double-edged sword in that they do so many good things for the neurons, but at higher levels, they act often as cytokines and can participate in an inflammatory response. So um, I think it's good to keep them at relatively lower levels while still trying to optimize the, uh, the neuroprotective effect. And I think that's, that's something I got looking at um, Matt LaVale's work way back when, when he was testing all these factors and as a control, so to speak, he uh, looked at interleukin-1 beta, and it had a best response of all of them. And <laughs> I remember that was a real head-scratcher at the time, but uh, later I started to think, you know, maybe that's just how it works here. Uh, you can use these um, inflammatory cytokines, but use them in non-inflammatory, more homeopathic doses. And so if you combine them, maybe, uh, maybe you can get the with levels of each individual factor down even lower. I can see we're, we're coming down to uh, the end here. So I think I'm going to wrap things up. And I just want to thank the speakers and thank uh, the audience for the questions. Very good discussion.